Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. Well, good morning. My name is Joe, and I'm one of the leaders here, and um, you'll notice that Aaron didn't say any names when he mentioned the uh, people on staff who like food, because it's readily apparent, those of us who do, and so he didn't have to say names when it came to that, and I do love food. Um, I, it is Pastor Appreciation Month, and it always kind of feels a little weird, you know, as a pastor to, for that to be a thing, and Pastor Jeff has always talked about, why don't we do Volunteer Appreciation Month here at Renaissance? We always do things kind of different, don't we? And there are just so many people who help our church function, who are not paid staff, people like Aaron, who he and his whole family are a wonderful blessing to our church. And, and oftentimes you think that the people who get up every Sunday and, and preach are the only ones maybe in the church who are gifted with speaking abilities, but people like Aaron, he could get up here next week and preach. <laughs> He's good. That is a promise, Aaron, so I hope you're listening. Uh, <laughs> But the church is full of wonderful people who, who help to make it work. So thank you for all that you do. You should really give yourselves a hand in the way you serve Jesus and our church here because it is very important. We pray that often on Sunday mornings that, that when you're serving, you would feel a sense of the importance of it, that, that not only are you serving Jesus's people, but you're, you're serving him through doing that, and that's a wonderful thing. So thank you, all of you who, who do the work that you do to make Renaissance go. Well, I am continuing our study in the book of First John today, and I, um, I'm just gonna say, it, it, it was one of those mornings where I got up today and I didn't want to get out of bed. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, God bless you for being here because it's the perfect morning to stay in bed. Yesterday, I was supposed to do projects at the house all day. In fact, my wife kind of put it on an internal calendar that I was going to do this project. And I got up, and it was kind of a rainy and dreary day. And she knows that a rainy, dreary Saturday is my favorite kind of weather. My favorite kind of day. And what I like to do on a rainy and dreary Saturday is nothing. <laughs> and my wife, because she knows that and she knows what I had planned, she said, Joe, I know that this is your favorite kind of day. Why don't you just not do what you were going to do? Oh, she's an angel or an enabler. I haven't figured that out yet. Um, <laughs> because we're still kind of new in this marriage thing, but it's working out for me so far. But, but I, I, all that to say, like, I got up this morning and I'm like, oh man, I got to get out of bed and, and go preach. And I'm going to tell you what, like, I've struggled all week long with the message. Like, is this really what I want to talk about? And maybe you don't know this, but on Wednesday afternoon, I, uh, those of us who are preaching, we get up on stage around two o'clock and we preach to some of the staff members. And then they say, that was stupid. Or yeah, you should work a little more on that. And it helps us to develop the message for Sunday. And half an hour after I was finished on Wednesday, I text. Chris Krause and say to him, I think I'm changing the message completely. 
And he, he's like, okay, that's fine. And then later on that night, I'm like, no, never mind. I'm not going to change it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be fine. And then I get up this morning and I'm driving to church and I say, maybe I should change the message completely because I don't feel super confident in what I've prepared to say. And do you ever have those moments where you feel like God just, just cuts through? Like, it's hard to describe, but, but it's like God just cuts through all the noise, all of the, the stuff that's in your head and in your thoughts. He just cuts through and, and says something. And it was kind of like, it was no phrase or, or no words. I didn't hear the voice of God from heaven. It, but it was kind of this sense that like, if I'm struggling so much with this, maybe God just wants to use my weakness to do something really cool this morning. And the fact that so many of you actually got out on a beautiful day like today, when you could have stayed at home to do nothing, um, I'm, I don't over-spiritualize things. In fact, I have a tendency to under-spiritualize things, okay, just so you know that about me. So I, I'm not hyping it up when I say I, I think maybe um, God might really want to do something for us today. Maybe we're here for a reason is what I would say. Maybe God actually wants to do something in our hearts that would turn our attention towards him more so that we can live a more full and free life like he promises, like he commands in the book of 1 John. And we're going to jump in and study that today. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. So if you want to go there, if you have a Bible, you can open up and turn there. We'll be putting words up on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible. And I always say this, if you don't have a Bible because you don't own one, I want to give you one. So come see me at the end of the service at the welcome station just outside that overhead door. I'll put a Bible in your hands that can be yours. Um, but when you turn to 1 John, I want you to put your thumb there because we're not starting there. We're actually going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 31. And the reason we're doing this is because I want us to get a picture today of how the Bible itself is one big story. Now, here's what I mean by that. Here at Renaissance, we believe in this doctrine, this teaching of the church called the inspiration of the scriptures. And what that means is we believe that God inspired the authors of the Bible to write what they wrote. And the word inspired literally means breathed into. So the idea is that God breathed his spirit into the authors of the Bible so that what they were writing down, though they thought they were writing their own words, it was actually God's words. They were writing it down. This is why we refer to the Bible as the word of God, because God inspired it. He breathed into it. So what we have in the Bible is not just a collection of stories written over 3,600 years, though that is what it is, a collection of stories, but because there is one author who put it all together, it is one big story that connects from the beginning in the Garden of Eden all the way to the end when the Garden of Eden comes down to earth in this city that the Bible calls heaven. It's kind of crazy. I wish we had time right now to talk more about that, but we don't. But, but there's a beautiful story woven all throughout the Bible that God created humanity because he loves us. And then at some point we rebelled against him and broke that relationship. And ever since then, God was attempting to rescue and redeem. And so all throughout the Bible, he put little pictures. We call them types. That's the theological term types of this redeemer who would come to rescue all of us. And who is this redeemer? Jesus. The answer is always Jesus here at Renaissance. 
Jesus is the redeemer. And so we have so many types all throughout the Bible of this. And so at the time, they didn't realize that was what was going on. In fact, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says that the people in the Old Testament didn't know that the things were happening to them were happening for us so that we could look back one day and see God's been involved in this thing the whole time, okay? Does that make sense? So the Bible is one big story. He's trying to point us to Jesus throughout all of it. In John, the author of the book, the apostle John, he was one of Jesus's closest friends, um, it's kind of an interesting way of writing that he has. So some books of the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a very logical thinker. He started at the beginning, A, B, C, D, and worked his way on to Z. John kind of writes like this. We'll start at D, and then we'll move on to A, B, C, and then we'll go to one, two, seven, and then we'll jump back to A, B, C. And so because it's like that, as we dive into passages, it feels like we're talking about the same things over and over again. Now that's on purpose because God wants us to get the emphasis of what he's trying to say. But to, to help us understand it better so that we're not just saying the same things over again, I want to start in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 31. It says, when the words that David spoke were heard, and we'll talk a little bit about who David is if you're unfamiliar with him. They repeated him then before Saul, and Saul is the king of Israel at this time. And he sent for David. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him, because of Goliath. Maybe if you don't know anything about the Bible, if you've never been in church before in your life, you've probably heard of David and Goliath, right? So he's speaking of Goliath. No man's heart fail because of Goliath. Your servant, David, I will go and fight with him. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth and he... He's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, listen, I used to keep sheep for my father. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. It sounds like David is either a really great storyteller, like he's got big fish stories, or he's someone that should not be messed with. <laughs> Verse 36, I've struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine, he also is good at personal insults apparently, <laughs> shall be like one of those lions and bears I struck down, for he has defied the armies of a living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Fine, that's it. You, you go fight this guy, but man, God bless you. For trying, I want to jump back up to verse 27. David says, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight. David says, no one should be afraid because I'm going to go. Don't be afraid, Saul. I'll go and do this. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so thankful that we do have the gift of the Bible to teach us about who you are, to teach us more about Jesus, to give us an understanding of his love for us and your work in this world, the promise that you've made that, that you are going to rescue us if we turn our faith to you. So Lord, I pray that you would teach us that we'd know more about Jesus today than we did when we came in. Lord, I don't care if anyone remembers a thing I said, but may we, may we love you more when we leave here. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So David and Goliath is a very popular story. Like I said, even if you don't have any history in the church, you've probably heard the story of David and Goliath. And it's a classic underdog story of the person who is less powerful defeating a person who is much more powerful. Now, Goliath is believed, depending on where you get your information from, to be anywhere from between six foot nine to nine foot nine. Now, that sounds a little bit ridiculous. And six foot nine is tall, but why would you call that person a giant? Well, in that part of the world at that time, archaeological evidence tells us that the average man's height was between five foot three and five foot five. So nine foot nine or six foot nine, if you're five foot five, he's still a giant. So Goliath is ginormous, and he comes out every day as the Philistine army has come against the nation of Israel, and every day they taunt them, and they're pressed against them, and they cause great fear throughout the land because Goliath comes out and he says, if you can just send one of your best to come and defeat me, we'll pack our things and go home. Well, of course, no one wants to go out and fight Goliath because he's scary and he's big and his armor itself weighs about 150 pounds. His armor weighs probably more than David does. And it says that the spear he carried was was like a weaver's beam, which I don't know what that is, but it sounds really big and scary. And so he has this big spear that he carries around and heavy armor and he's a giant to these Israelites, and they taunt them every day, and they know that they can't defeat them, and they're filled with fear. In this story, we see we're caught up to a point where David has come to say, well, I'll go fight this guy. Now, David is the youngest of seven sons of his father, and the rest of them are out at the battle. They're, they're encamped waiting to fight the Philistines, and David is a youth at this point, and so his father has him tending sheep. And at some point he says to him, David, I want you to take some bread and some cheese and go down to your brothers and and see how things are going at the battle. So here comes David with a charcuterie board and an apron on. And he comes down to all these soldiers and he's like, hey guys, how's it going? And they're like, get out of here, Betty Crocker. We know that you're just trying to see the battle that's going on. You have no business being here. You're just a dumb kid. And David's like, well, what's really What's really going on? He begins to ask around, like, what's going to happen to the man who would defeat Goliath? And they say, well, the king has promised him one of his daughters in marriage, so he'd be a prince in the kingdom. And the king has promised that his entire family would never pay taxes again. Well, that's enough to give that a try, right? And David says, well, why is everybody afraid? Who, who wouldn't want to try to get this prize? David says, I'll go. I'll go do this. And we know the end of the story that, that David overcomes. He, he, he takes a small stone and he, he puts it in a sling and he throws it at Goliath and it sinks into Goliath's forehead and Goliath dies. And the Bible tells us that David cut off his head with Goliath's own sword. He probably really did kill the lion and the bear too. David's a pretty, pretty bad dude. And so this story is often used to describe the difference between fear and faith. David, in his great faith in God and what God had done through him in the past, was able to overcome this giant, Goliath, who was causing fear to everyone else. And so instead of being led by fear like everyone else was, David's faith led him. And his faith brought him to a point where he was actually able to overcome and defeat the enemy. And we often consider that the enemy 
of fear is actually faith. And that is true. The enemy of fear is our faith. And the enemy of faith is our fear. Now, faith is an interesting thing when it comes to fear because faith doesn't erase fear. I'll tell you what I mean by that is that I can still be afraid of something and yet still have faith that God will come through. Would you agree with that? And, and, and I, can, I can still believe that God is going to take care of me. I can still believe that God is going to fix whatever situation I'm facing. I can still believe that, that, that everything is going to be just fine through God, but I can still be afraid of it. Faith does not conquer fear. In the face of faith, when, when we're empowered by faith, fear still exists. It does not conquer fear. But there is something the Bible tells us that does conquer fear. Fear. Our faith, while it is powerful and it is important and it, we are nothing as followers of Christ without our faith, that is not what defeats fear. We find out what that is in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. It says this, that we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. And here it is in verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love conquers fear. Perfect love sends fear away. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And here's maybe one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. I think of it often. I quote it to people often. It's verse 19. It says, we love because he first loved us. We love because he said, don't be afraid. I'm going to go and get you and rescue you. Now, the Bible says here that God is love and that there is no fear in love. Now, God being love, the, the essence of his very being, all of his actions, all of his other attributes, it's like if, if the attributes of God were a wheel and the hub in the middle were love and then all of the spokes coming off of it were the attributes of who he is. God is good because he is love. God is just because he is love. God is wise because he is love. God is holy because he is love. It's the essence of who he is. His love for us then because he is love is perfect. He cannot love you any less than he does right now and he cannot love you any more than he does right now because God's love is perfect. Now, the Bible says that God is love and that there is no fear in love, but I wanna clear something up real quick because some of you might be considering this, that, that why then does the Bible say that we should fear God? <laughs> if God is love and there's no fear in love, why are we to fear God? Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord, the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. Everything we know about who God is and following him comes from our fear of him. Now, we have to understand the difference between being afraid and having this type of fear that the Bible talks about. This, this fear of the Lord is not a trembling fear where we're afraid to come near to him. It's a, it's a fear that, that honors him, 
that reverences him, that acknowledges him for who he is. For example, Colossians 1 says that Jesus made all things. He made all things for himself, and he made all things by his powerful words. And in fact, he's still holding all of the universe together. If he were to take his hands off, the universe would fly apart. The law of physics does not apply in that situation. You see, when we understand that this is who God is, we approach him with that in mind. That, Lord, you, you do know better than finite Joe does. You, you, you do love me more than I could ever imagine. Lord, you do love my enemy even though I hate him. And so when we understand that he's better and different from us in every way, we approach him with a, a level of reverence and fear, we'll call it, knowing that he's completely different than I am. If I had the option between fighting a um, nine-foot-nine man in the forest in the middle of the night with no flashlight or an alien from some other planet, I would pick the guy, <laughs> because I don't understand the alien. I don't know where to hit the alien to make him crumble, okay? But, but, but the man I do because I understand because we're the same. God is completely different from us and because of this, we approach him from that way. So to fear the Lord doesn't mean we're afraid of him. It means that we approach him understanding he's holy, he's different. He's not like me in every way. The Bible says as, as the distance between the ground that we stand on and the stars in the sky, that's, that's the distance between God's ways and our ways. There's no comparison. So that's what it is to fear the Lord, that we approach him understanding that. Now, the fear that love casts out or conquers is a type of fear that is not from God. In fact, the Bible says that, that fear, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but he has given us a, a spirit or a mind that, that is of Christ. It's a sound mind. It, it's being able to think the thoughts that Jesus might think. It, that's, the, that's the mind that God has given to us. That's the spirit God has given to us, not one to fear. And the fear that love conquers is not forgotten easily because sometimes our anxiety will linger if you've ever had a panic attack or if you've ever suffered from anxiety, you understand that if you've done something that caused you to have anxiety, if you, if you have to do that thing again, you'll start to have anxiety just thinking about that thing again. Because what if I have another panic attack while I'm doing that thing? What if I have another anxiety attack while I'm doing that thing? And so it follows us around wherever we go and it wakes up with us sometimes and it goes to work with us sometimes. It comes back home with us sometimes. The fear that is not from God does not let us forget who it is. And we have to keep this in mind too, that it is not our friend, even though we at times become so familiar with it, we wouldn't even know how to function without it. That it is such a powerful force in our lives that if suddenly my anxiety were gone, I wouldn't know how to function in a world that was free and actually felt good. I, about three years ago, I suffered from a months-long bout of depression and anxiety, and I didn't even realize that that was happening to me until after it was done. I just knew that something wasn't right, but, but once it was gone, once the anxiety and depression had lifted, I remember exactly where I was. I was at Fairview Kroger, which is no longer there, and... It, I was walking through the freezer section and I just realized like my head was bobbing, my arms were swinging and I'm like, I feel happy and at peace right now. 
where did this come from? Oh my gosh, I haven't felt this way in months. We become so familiar and friendly with our anxiety that we don't even want it to be cast out because it's such a part of who we are. The terrible thing about our fear is that it will forbid us from loving others. Anxiety will keep you from being with people that you love and that love you because of what the anxiety will do to you. Fear will keep you from loving others because what if they won't love me back? What if I reach out? What, if there's a division between us, what if I reach out and they, they don't get back to me? And so fear will overcome us and it will keep us from taking that step. And it feels like a giant in our life that we cannot defeat, that we look all around and everyone seems to be afraid and full of anxiety. But the answer for it is not our faith. It's not just believing more that God will make a way, which I believe he will do. The answer for it is understanding his perfect love. Here's the thing about God's perfect love. The Bible says it casts out fear. It literally means it disposes of it. It dumps it out like a pot full of dirty water. Someone gave me at the beginning of this year a meat smoker. <laughs> Hallelujah. And it had only been used one time. And it's not a real fancy one. It's just an electric meat smoker. It's great, perfect for a guy who's never done it before and wants to kind of give it a whirl. And so the way it works is that it, it has a heating element that sits on some lava rocks and you put some wood chips on the lava rocks and you plug it in and that's all you have to do. And the heating element heats the lava rocks and the lava rocks heat the wood chips and the wood chips create smoke and they smoke the meat. Now, the meat that you usually put on a smoker, the meat that I like to put on a smoker, is really fatty meat. You know what I'm talking about? Meat that, meat that has a lot of fat on it so that the fat will kind of juice it up a little bit. I don't know if that's like the real culinary term or not, juice it up a little bit. We you know what I'm talking about, right? Like the fat in the meat makes it good. Well, underneath the grate where the meat goes, there's a basin that you fill with water. The water creates steam, and depending on what or how long you're smoking, you may have to add more water on it. But when you're done smoking, after you've let it cool down, and after you've tried the delicious, fatty, juicy meat, and after you clean the grate, you're supposed to take that basin of water and dump it out. Because while we know that fat in meat is delicious, fat that has dripped off of meat and fallen into water and sits there for days like I let it do, is disgusting. <laughs> My least favorite thing to do when it comes to smoking is to take that water basin and go dump it out because it always spills, you know. It's, it just gets everywhere, and it's gross. But, but pouring out a, a, a substance that you no longer want, pouring something out that, that is disgusting to you, that's the idea that we get from this word that perfect love casts out fear. It pours it out like it doesn't belong there anymore. When God's perfect love comes in, it pushes it away. It completely disposes of fear and it will always deny itself. This is what Jesus did for us. He came down to this earth. I mentioned earlier that he created all things and he's holding all things together. But we know the Christmas story that at one point he let all of that aside and came down to this earth. God became a zygote 
in the womb of a virgin named Mary. The the creator and sustainer of the universe put on human flesh, denying himself. I like to think of it this way. Jesus just got over himself and humbled himself and became a man because that is what perfect love does. It is never about my love for him because that's what we like to do. Sometimes we even like to sing about that, how much we love God and, and how much we want to do for him and how we love to worship him. We like to sing those things, and that's all great, but the story of the Bible is never about how much people love God. In fact, the running theme of the Bible is how much we suck at loving God and loving others. Jesus is the one who loves well. Jesus is the one who does it right. Verse 19 says, we love because he first loved. We win because Jesus, like David, denied himself and said, I'll go and do it. I'll go. I don't care that the rest of you are afraid. I don't care that no one else is incapable of doing this. I'll go and do it. And we know that David did it for his own reward of becoming a prince in the kingdom of having no taxes for his family the rest of their lives. Jesus did it for his own reward as well. Do you know what the Bible tells us that reward was for him? It was you and I. It was you and I. He denied himself for us, and he gives us this command, this example, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, which we like to say, and I think we should love God, Even though we can't do it very well, we should love him. But if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. That's the thing about John. He don't pull no punches. If you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. We've never seen God with our eyes, but there are flesh and blood people all around us all the time who have different opinions than we do, who we have a really hard time loving. You know what Jesus said? He said, they will know you are my disciples by the stand that you take. No, he did not say that. (laughs) He said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for each other. Not by how well you argue your point. Not by how well you bolster your opinion. Not by how well you can verbally eviscerate another person on Facebook because you don't have to look them in the eye, you coward. He said, you'll know them by your love for one another. Denying ourselves sometimes means setting aside my opinion. Sometimes means um, having to back off from the stance that I have for the sake of love for another person. If we don't think that's true, all we have to do is look at Jesus, who was completely right when condemning the world in judgment for our sin. All of us are guilty. And he said, I don't care. I'm still going to go. At the end of Jesus' life, the night before he's crucified, he's sitting down with his closest friends, the 12 disciples, and 
They're sharing what is a Jewish feast called the Passover. And at this feast, they would eat like bitter herbs. They would eat, take bread and they would eat that. But it was unleavened bread to remind them that when the children of Israel left Egypt, when they were rescued by God from the land of Egypt through Moses, that they had to leave in a hurry. And so they didn't have time to bake their bread with leaven. So they just made like tortilla shells, I guess. And so that's all they had time for. And so they would celebrate this meal with that to remember that. And they would remember it with a cup of wine that they'd pass around. And what they did on that first Passover night when they were rescued out of the land is they would slaughter a lamb and they would paint the doorposts of their home with the blood of this lamb. And whenever God's angel that he sent to send destruction in that land came through, I'm really butchering the story because I'm not able to share all the details because I'm running out of the time. But just know that they call it Passover because when he saw the blood on the doorpost of that home, he passed over that house. And they celebrate this every year to this day. And Jesus is doing that with his closest friends. And he sits down with them and they've got bread and wine at this meal. And we commemorate that moment once a month here at Renaissance was something we call communion. Now, when you came in, hopefully you were given one of these. If you did not receive them, raise your hand and someone will bring one to you if you'd like to take communion. Now, just so you know, you don't have to be a member here to receive communion. Um, we do this because, not as a ritual, not as a tradition, but because we want to remember what Jesus has done for the, us. And it is very poignant to talk about communion right now, considering what it means for us in terms of what we've just talked about, how Jesus left heaven and came to earth, how Jesus's love drove him to come down here and uh, not withhold himself from us, how he completely denied himself and gave himself for us completely. And in love. And he says this when he's got the bread. He takes it and he broke it, the Bible says. And so I would just, I'm just gonna ask you to do that. Your little wafer that you have, it's not styrofoam, it actually is edible. <laughs> um, he broke it. So just go ahead and break that, break it in half. And, and he said, This is my body. And he's giving them a picture. Like tomorrow, some, some people are gonna arrest me. Or tonight, actually, it happened that night. He was arrested, and he's like, and tomorrow I'm going to be crucified. My body is going to be broken. And he says, this bread is like my body, and it's broken for you. And they're all sitting around the table like, what? What are you talking about? Now, the Bible in other parts outside of that story says that the body of Christ is the church. We're his body. So every time I take communion and, and I think about that moment, of, like when Jesus says, this is my body broken for you, I think about the ways in which those of you here at this church have given of yourself to love me, in a sense, been broken for me. I think about the ways in which sometimes loving one another feels like a sacrifice and it feels like being killed because we have to let aside our opinions. I think about that. And so when I, when I hear that Jesus say, this is my body broken for you, I remember, of course, he was crucified. His body was broken, but we're the body of Christ now. And sometimes in order to show his love to others, he breaks us for each other. Sometimes that looks like shutting my mouth. 
Sometimes it looks like opening my mouth to say I love you. Sometimes it looks like just reaching across to let somebody know you're there. But, but he says, this is my body broken for you. And here's my hope is that we, as the body of Christ, followers of Jesus, we would look at that example and we'd hear him say, he was broken for us. What am I to do but be broken for others in that same way? And he said, take and eat. So take and eat this broken body. And then he passed around a cup of wine, which we have grape juice, so it's not as fun, but it's still kind of, this isn't bad juice. He passed that around the table, and he says, this is my blood that's going to be poured out tomorrow. This is, this is my blood that's going to wash away your sin. And today what I want us to do when we drink this juice and remember the blood of Jesus that washes sins away as it washes down our throat is to do two things. If I'm feeling guilty about things that I've done, just let, let the feeling of that as it goes down your throat, help it, let it help you realize that Jesus has washed away all of your sins. Okay? And then I suspect maybe this will apply to more of us, me for sure, that if there's someone who's sinned against me, when I drink today, to let me remember that Jesus has washed that sin away as well. So think of that person that you can't forgive. Think of that person that you can't stand. Think of that person that when they come to your mind, you say, I hate them in a Christian way. And then drink. Lord, we're so thankful for the example that you have shown to us of perfect love that in the face of fear, like, Lord, what if I forgive and I'm not forgiven in return? What if I reach out and they, they don't text back? What if I take a step and they don't do the same? Lord, what if I, I've got so much to lose if I decide to show love? Lord, I thank you that you didn't, you didn't count those costs when you came. You didn't consider those things. You just came because we needed it. Lord, I pray as we've remembered you being broken, as we remember your blood being washed, poured out to wash away our sins, Lord, that we would remember that now this command as followers of you, as members of your body, belongs to us now too. That we would not hold anyone's sin against them, even sins that have been committed against us. So, Lord, with lumps in our throats, we ask you to help us. Help us to be like you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite you now, if you're able, to go ahead and stand as we begin to worship again and focus our attention towards Jesus, who, in the midst of our battles with ourselves, is the one who overcomes is the one who defeats the enemy, is the one who helps us to do what only he can really do. Amen. Thanks for joining with us today. 
We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you.